This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Busy day at Hamilton City Hall with a couple of issues that we're going to get into on the program today. One is downtown, the other in the west end of the city. Uh, City Council uh, will need to ratify this decision, but uh, the planning staff have given a thumbs up to uh, the condo towers. They're going to be located right downtown in the Gore area by the uh, former Kresge's department store location. Jason Farr is the counselor for that area. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to bring us an update on this. Counselor Farr, thanks for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill, and I'll give you more time than Justin did last week. (laughs) Well, without the beer involved, that's great. That's good to know. Uh, when you and I talked at uh, the Remembrance Day ceremonies uh, downtown, uh, we were, you and I were staring at that great hole in the ground. It used to be the Kresge's building, and you talked about some great plans that are lined up for this. Uh, it's gone through the council session, or the committee session right now. Let's talk about what the plan is at this stage and what's going to be there. Uh, well, we have a, uh, an exciting development uh, where the former Kresge site was that turned into the Kmart at 1994 evolved into a bingo parlor, which uh, has more infamous than famous stories, I'm sure, attached to it over uh, the course of about 20 years or so. And uh, yesterday at uh, planning committee unanimously, uh, without any real uh, upsets uh, or um, uh, uh, tough debates, we passed a uh, couple of towers. It's actually one building with uh, two peak towers at 26 stories apiece coming off a four-story podium that goes all the way from King Street to King William and then across uh, uh, King William. So uh, this is a project brought to us by uh, Leuna High Rise, real doers, obviously. Uh, We've seen in the last year and a half just around the corner on uh, James Street what they've been doing with William Thomas and uh, the Student Tower. Uh, Now very much uh, we we don't even need to visualize anymore. We can see that uh, form has taken shape. And uh, they are ready to uh, bring the crane a uh, block and a half down the road and uh, get moving just as soon as we uh, ratify this at council. That particular location is a very storied history, as you know. Uh, you and I were just kids in those days. But, I mean, it used to be, as you mentioned, a Kresge's department store uh, with a famous lunch counter that an awful lot of people would frequent. Uh, then it became the bingo hall. and. I can still remember having a discussion on this program, Jay, about one particular incident where uh, the owner of the building at that time actually put big loudspeakers out there at that corner and played classical music all day uh, to try to disperse some of the ne'er-do-wells that used to hang around that corner and cause some some consternation with some of the locals at the time. Now, all of a sudden, it sounds like it's going to be a people place again. Very much a people place and a design that very much uh, pays homage and tribute to the area uh, you know, Gore is a very historic uh, parcel in our, our downtown. The uh, fabric that they're going to use to design particularly that podium, podium the four-story podium I spoke of, that's street level, uh, um, you know, is using materials that uh, tribute, uh, pay tribute to things like the Westinghouse and other uh, materials used in, in some of the historic buildings uh, that, that remain today. Most of them do, of course. And uh, the design also has a lot of emphasis on the Gore Park Fountain. The entranceway um, at the corner of King and uh, Houston will be um, looking directly across at Gore Park. So Gore Park very much plays a a major role in the design and the concept. So we've definitely covered in a rather short order. You hear a lot, Bill, and I know you've talked about it in the past sometimes with with our our planning um, uh, projects. Uh, we, We... take a little longer than any of us would like, including our good uh, planners and, and uh, the, the people that work under Jason Thorne, our general manager of planning and economic development. But the reality is this uh, project was announced when we cut the ribbon at the student tower along Jane Street, the aforementioned student tower, 
probably last spring and in June, everything became formalized through our, our planning department. And over the course of the last seven months, uh, we've been we've managed to bring a very large scale project to the downtown to the floor and ultimately voted on it in, in favor and unanimously yesterday. So it's it's uh, it's it's proof in the pudding that we are still very much uh, on the move in downtown Hamilton. We're talking about Bill 500 and change in residential units, likely well over a thousand new residents feeding into the local businesses in our downtown. Uh, you know, and you've talked about, and we've talked about before, the exciting things that are happening on what a lot of people have dubbed Restaurant Row or King William. And uh, certainly with 12,000 square foot of commercial uh, space, I would not be surprised once that commercial space on the ground floor of this exciting new development is leased out, uh, that will only add to the uh, wonderful amenities, restaurant amenities that have become Restaurant Row or, or King William in downtown. So there's lots of great stuff attached sidebar stories that add to the excitement of this project. So what's going on here? I mean, 15 years ago, I remember talking to the head of economic development for the city, uh, Nick Catalano. He said, you know what, we, we can't even get a, retur- a phone call return when we start talking about de- development downtown. Nobody seems interested in it. Now they're crawling all over each other to try to get into all this. You've got Leuna, you've got Core Urban, you've got Wilson Blanchard, you've got the Spalachi uh, Valerie group that's going on, and others now. They're knocking out the door. What's what's changed in the last number of years that makes this such a great place for development? Well, you know, you know, we are the GTHA now. H stands for Hamilton. I think, uh, in fact, I know that when you know some of the planning policies that we've come up with over the course of the last seven years and a bit, uh, transit-oriented planning. When we look at our growth plan and some of the mandates that are set about uh, with respect to the province. Uh, there are a number of investors, many local, but also people from coming outside these parts that uh, believe in those growth plans, that believe in transit-oriented planning. This uh, um, um, uh, development is the direct result of the investment the Council continues to make on LRT, and that was uh, mentioned yesterday during the uh, about hour and a half uh, debate and presentation from both uh, the uh, planners on the file uh, with the city of Hamilton and, of course, the planners hired by Leuna and High Rise. So, so there, there's um, buy-in, I think, and uh, certainly, obviously, we continue to see the influx of, of folks seeing a better, still a more feasible to their budgets, uh, real estate market here in the city. So the demand is, is most certainly there. And again, some of the things that we're working on or that we've, we've put policies we've put in place, but pending policies like in mid-March, the downtown secondary plan, also um, uh, sort of puts policies in place that become attractive to the investors in that we have um, opportunities uh, and we have policies that are are very clearly defined, that will be very clearly defined. Right now it's in draft form uh, that tells folks who want to make these investments where they can do it, what they can do in terms of the uh, densities and uh, how how we can work together in, 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 in achieving some of the goals we have and the growth targets which is essentially about 200 jobs and people per hectare in the downtown core. We're not quite there on all of our precincts downtown, but uh, these kinds of projects certainly help us uh, get to uh, those goals and even surpass those goals in some areas. For Absolutely. Sure. Uh, great news story so far for downtown. Jay, we'll stay in touch uh, as this develops over the next little while. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr. Another project that uh, that the committee dealt with yesterday that uh, is is maybe getting a bit more pushback than uh, than the one down in the uh, the downtown area is uh, 
out near McMaster University, where some homeowners are uh, expressing some concern and, fr- frankly, some places just downright opposition to uh, the expansion of the school's off-campus housing project. Uh, still in the early phases right now, but uh, some folks, uh, what they saw yesterday didn't really appeal to them. Uh, Gord Arbo is the McMaster uh, U- University Director of Public and Community Relations. Joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this morning. Gord, how are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. Great to be with you. I talked with you about this some months ago when you first floated this idea. As a matter of fact, this past Monday, I just drove past the property in question. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what's being proposed at this stage. And, and I've been on record already after you and I talked about this. I say, I think this is a pretty good idea, but uh, there is some concern in, in the community and in the neighborhood about this. So let's talk a little bit about what McMaster is planning on doing here. Sure. I think it begins with sort of the overarching message that uh, there is strong demand uh, from students, uh, undergraduate, graduate students, from uh, researchers, faculty members, and other staff to come to Hamilton. And I think that links into the conversation you were having, having with the, the counselor just uh, before I came on, uh, that McMaster and Hamilton are strongly positioned for, uh, uh, as, a, as a destination of choice for, for prospective students. The challenge we have at McMaster is that we have... Um, we're, we're a landlocked university, 300 acres or so. We've grown quite a bit over the last number of years. Uh, we have approximately 3,600 um, on-campus uh, resident spaces for uh, mainly first-year students. Uh, and uh, we have, we're one of the few universities in Ontario that can't guarantee an on-campus residence uh, space for every first-year student that wants to live on campus. So we're at a bit of a disadvantage that way. <coughs> Pardon me. We're uh, in the process of of building uh, 500 new beds on campus, uh, a new residence that would open in 2019. And we've worked very closely, and we're very proud of the relationship we have uh, with um, um, neighborhood associations. We have a regular uh, committee that uh, is chaired by uh, a senior leader here at the university and with um, the president of the neighborhood association. We meet regularly. Um, And so we've been working with them, and, and I think... Um, when you look at the response to this early stage plan that we have, uh, we're pleased that the Neighborhood Association does recognize the need and is supportive of, of the plan to construct a, a new student residence on that site. So what's happened over um, the course of the past year, the university has acquired a number of student rental homes, homes that are being rented out to students along Traymore Avenue. The university already owns a stretch of a property that faces onto Main Street um, uh, as well in that area. So the plan would be to construct in two phases uh, two student uh, uh, residences, one that would ho- uh, be uh, home to 950 students. The second phase to be built at, at a later date would be home to another 400 or so um, students. So that's the plan. We're early in the process. We have, um, we've been meeting with the neighborhood associations and some neighbors. Uh, we have another meeting coming up uh, in February, a public information session, and we're keen on f- learning their uh, uh, ideas, their opinions, and, and gaining their feedback from them. Uh, there's a play, a couple of things at play here, Gord, and, and I'm not going to try to put words in the mouths of some of the residents, because I heard some of these concerns, you know, dating way back to when I was on council. I can remember there's a student residence, not a McMaster uh, uh, endorsed one, but, you know, the one that's way down on uh, on Main Street uh, by mm-hmm. uh, Highway 2 there, the, the old CNIB building. And, and I remember a number of residents expressed some concerns about that building at the time. Some of them, like, say, eight or nine blocks away, and they said, well, we don't want that. There's a stigma 
Because there have been problems with student housing in some areas in the past, but I know that you at the university have worked with the city and with neighborhood groups on this uh, to try to, to mitigate those impacts and to try to, to, to lessen the concerns. And I, and I think you guys have made some huge strides in that area. Uh, plus the fact that there's a reality here that McMaster University is now a world-class university. It's not just people from Hamilton that want to attend McMaster. You've got people from all over the world that want to attend McMaster, and you've got to have some place to put them. That's true, and I think the, the key difference here, Bill, is that this project, this, this new residence, uh, will be operated by the university as part of our, of our campus residence system. Um, and so, you know, we've over the years... Uh, and that, become, that, that goes to accountability. Right, absolutely. So, you know, there will be um, um, the students that live in these, um, in these residences will have the same student code of conduct responsibilities that they have in our on-campus residence, there will be um, residence assistance and community assistance. And, and that, uh, you know, that addresses a big concern because an awful lot of the problems with student housing uh, with Mohawk and McMaster in the past have been about absentee landlords. Well, you're, it's not an absentee landlord. You're the landlord. Right. So, so that's, that's a key difference in this. And we think that we, uh, you know, the, the plan to construct this is, is uh, somewhat unique. We're, we're partnering with a private sector partner, a Nightstone Capital, that, have, that are in the business of constructing um, um, uh, higher ed, post-secondary student residences on university campuses and college campuses. So we think there's, there's a, a good partnership there as well. This is a large and significant development, and so we understand that um, uh, uh, neighbors and, uh, and those in the community will have opinions on it, and that's, that's the phase we're in now. We want to hear um, um, those concerns and those questions, and, and we're in that process now. And this is not carved in stone. This is not something you say, this is what we're going to do. We're not flexible on this. Uh, you, you, at this stage, this is, this is malleable. This is something you can work with the community on to try to find something. Right. I mean, we're here. McMaster University is here for the long term. And so we're not interested in squandering uh, the really productive and sustainable relationships we've had with our neighbors and with the community built over many, many years uh, at many different tables, and so we're not interested in, in squandering that or jeopardizing that, and we obviously want to hear um, from the community. And I think the, the, the AWWCA, the local community association, the, the uh, letter from, uh, from its president and board, uh, recognizes the need for uh, more uh, resident space and recognizes that this, is a, this site is a suitable site for that. The question then becomes the details of the, the project design and the project plan, and that's what we're, we're discussing right now. Oh, I know, because some of the things that were brought up here, like parking, etc., uh, those, those are works in progress, and there's, some, there's a lot of flexibility there, especially with some of the new builds that are going on these days. Uh, I, as I say, it's still early stages. There's still a lot of conversation to be had. But, uh, but I think this is a project that, that has to go forward, and uh, I hope you, you guys find some middle ground on this, can get this thing going. Gord, thank you so much for the update. I really appreciate the time today. Thanks for the opportunity, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Gord Arbo, of course, uh, with McMaster, the Director of Public and Community Relations. And uh, for those concerned residents, uh, as Gord mentioned, uh, still a lot of time to go, and the Ward Councilor, Aiden Johnson, apparently is working with some of those groups too. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Last week we uh, told you that it uh, looks like the folks at Bedrock Industries uh, were kind of sort of thinking about uh, doing something about the uh, the blast furnaces at Stelco, and that was good news. In other words, they want to make sure that they still have that opportunity, so they're going to put some money into that, invest into that, uh, not to have them go on full bore or anything like that, but it seemed like a pretty good news story. 
So we thought, hey, that sounds like some pretty good news. Maybe the steel industry is making a comeback, especially here in Hamilton, because let's face it, there's some pretty dark days. This way comes the story that Hamilton's specialty bar, which apparently is doing great business these days, they just called a whole bunch of people back to work to try to fill some orders, but they're gone into receivership. What's going on here? I thought this was supposed to be an uptake with the steel industry. Let's ask Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business over at McCraskey University, about what's happening. Hi, Marvin. How are you this morning? I'm glad to talk to you, Bill. Well, let's talk a little bit about this, because this was one that was kind of under the radar, mm-hmm. and, and I think surprised an awful lot of people. It did. So let me just take you back. The Hamilton Specialty Bar is the old Slater Steel. Yep. Uh, a different kind of an operation than what Stelco or DeFasco has. They use an electric arc furnace, and they take scrap melt it down through that process and turn it into bar, specialty bar, which can be used in any number of things, the auto industry, construction, so on and so forth. Um, A little different, too, in the sense that they they, uh, don't necessarily have long-term contracts. So they go out, somebody puts in a specialty order, they make it to that specification, then they get another specialty order, they do something different. Now, if I take you back, 2007, uh, this was a company that was also in creditor protection and emerged uh, there was actually a small bidding war between two different companies and a delaware based company uh, wound up owning this company in two thousand and seven this is when they changed the name of it to hamilton specialty bar now in the last ten years the story coming out of it and again because it's privately held we don't get to see a lot of public information about the company but was that it, it was always struggling with cash flow now what does cash flow mean here to fund its operations, it had taken on some debt. Nothing in comparison to the former Stelco. They had over $2 billion in debt. Here we're talking about debt more on the order of $30 million. But, you know, sometimes they'd make the payments, sometimes they wouldn't make the payments, sometimes they'd have to restructure the loan, and on and on it had gone over the last decade. Uh, And what basically happened on January the 8th, so roughly 10 days ago, was that the people who were owed money said, we've lost faith, we've lost faith, in the people who operate this company. So, court, we want you to take over the operation and appoint what's known as a receiver. In this case, it's the accounting firm of Ernst & Young. This receiver's job first is to get the company functioning, operating, so they act as the new management team. And then uh, tomorrow, they're going to go into court again, and Ernst & Young is going to say, okay, we've got that part of it going, we're operating, but that's not our business, we're not a steel company, obviously, so we're going to seek the court's permission to find a buyer and have hopefully find somebody with a deeper set of pockets and a more stable approach who can take this over. It affects roughly 200 employees, uh, maybe 170 or so who are unionized, 40 or so who are in the offices, and and it's been a difficult time. They took a Christmas break. Unlike a blast furnace, electric arc furnaces can be turned on and off relatively easy, and so they, they shut down for Christmas. That's pretty normal, but rather than starting back up on January the 2nd, everyone was told to stay home. That has been reversed now. They're operating again. But again, great concern when you see something like this in the courts. Now, when you get into what they call cash flow, let's let's talk a little bit about that. For those that, that have never run a business uh, and, and or done the books for one like this, uh, that's that's a, a bit of a conundrum because I think a lot of people might think, Marvin, well, it's cash in, cash out, isn't it? I mean, you know, you 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 pay for the materials, you pre the product, you sell it to you know company X Y Z, they pay you, you pay off the other guys, Bob's your uncle, you're good to go. Uh, yes. But there's it's it, there's timing elements to this, and my understanding is 
uh, the best advice is companies seem to actually need to have almost like a float, a, a, yes. an account that they can dip into. And if, that's, if that counts dry, you're in trouble. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. So cash flows come about because of the timing of things. In this situation, this company has to buy its raw material, which is scrap, and it has to pay for that up front. It then is going to treat it, it's going to run it through the electric arc furnace, turn it into something. It's then going to ship it to somebody. That person then gets a bill, a bill that's payable, usually within 30 days. And so you've got to have a float of money to keep your company going from the time you acquire the scrap to the time that people pay their bill. And if, as in this is what's also happened over the last 10 years, it's not been the happiest 10 years. We've had uh, a recession in 2007-8, and then from then, the market was slowly recovering. Yes, 2017 was a good year, but up until then, it had been slowly recovering. So some of the people they would sell product to might not pay in 30 days. They might pay in 45 days or 60 days, and that puts a strain then on your operations. That's often why you go out and get some debt. Uh, we call that a line of credit or a rotating line of debt so that you can you need cash. I get it from the bank, or in this case, it was Wells Fargo. Uh, if uh, if I can pay it off, I do, and I have this rotating line, and all supposed to be good as long as you keep having this sort of steady flow through of traffic. But if something slows down, if your orders slow down, suddenly you're not producing as much, but you've got other costs going, you might need to say to the debtor, well, I, I wanted to pay you back some of that money, but can I get a little advance? And And that's where this thing starts to fall apart to the point that the creditor said, I've had enough. You know, they've come to me so often, over the last four or five years, looking for extensions, looking for this, looking for something, I've had enough. And it should be noted that uh, today, this company, Hamilton Specialty Bar, isn't actually owned locally. There are two uh, major ownership groups, they're companies. One is a financial group out of Delaware, but the other is an operating group out of, I believe it's Nova Scotia. And um, they've been having problems in other parts of their business as well. So when you put it all together, I'm not surprised that the court on January the 8th said, let's put a receiver in there to run this company. So the, the, to put a, a bow on these economic concerns then, I mean, if, if you have a line of credit and you figure, well, that's going to be my float in case these guys don't pay in time, uh, if, if they still don't pay in time, then you're running up your, your line of credit. So you're getting deeper and deeper into debt. Uh, but I, I'm looking at the stories that I've seen on this, Marvin, and it sounds like business is going pretty well there. You've you got to wonder why there would be cash flow problems at this stage. Well, I'm going to say yes and no, Bill. So, yes, they have some orders to fill, and certainly the receiver, Ernst & Young, is making sure that they fill those orders and generate the cash from those orders. The problem is that given the company's spotty financial records, these are not long-term orders. They're more one-off orders. And so where's the orders coming for February or March or April? That's where the concern comes. And the flip it around, if you're a customer and you're looking to buy steel for March or April and you hear about a company that's in some financial distress and might not be around or excuse me, might be in receivership, are you prepared to buy product from them? So this is why we have to go through this process and hopefully fairly quickly, like quickly meaning a matter of months, not years, to restabilize this company so that customers will actually feel comfortable placing those orders again. I'm not trying to scare any workers out there, but that, that just remains a concern. Am I going to order product for April delivery if there's a chance you may not be operating in February or March? And so you need to reestablish confidence with those customers. Having a, a court involved does some of that. Having a company like an Ernst & Young running it, that helps some. But long-term stability, who's really running the show? Who am I really going to be buying product from? 
three months, six months, nine months from now, that's going to be critical to this business's survival. And by the way, there are some similarities between this and the Stelco situation, or U.S. Steel, I guess, if you want to go that far back into some of these CCAA things. Uh, there were some pension concerns that you yep. mentioned back with the original sale. Yep. Uh, that was all settled, and I guess the people that are on pension right now have gone to that defined contribution fund that, uh, that you've talked about, which really seems to be the way that most places in industry are going now. Well, it eliminates longer-term obligations. So where you have a pension deficit, and this is what happened with Stelco, was when you have a defined benefit plan, if the market goes bad, if your investments go bad, and there's now a gap between the amount of money in the fund and the amount of money that actuaries say you're going to need over the lifetime of the fund, it falls back on the company to make that shortfall. If I go to a defined contribution plan, I'm going to put in $1,000 into your pension fund. Now, look, you manage it. And if you don't manage it well, that's not my problem. I'm not obligated to make up any losses that you have. And so it's that shift of responsibility. That's why people have gone there. Um, I think there is a concern, actually, right at the moment, Bill, for some of the retirees. The way I understood it was when the receiver took over, they kept the benefits for the workers, but some benefits for retirees have I'll use the word been suspended, doesn't mean they've been canceled, but for the moment they're in a bit of a, a hole until they can sort out the future. So there, you know, there is a concern when you, when you have a loss like this, and, and where is the court going to go? The court's first responsibility here, again, is to the creditors, and I know people get sick and tired of hearing this, but it's, it's the creditors who advance the money for this company to operate, and when they weren't getting paid back, they're the ones who said, hey, I, I'm not happy with this management group, so that's where the court is coming from. I think it'll be different. There are about 400 retirees here uh, for Hamilton Specialty Bar, so a much smaller number than we saw for Stelco. And likewise, the size of some of these uh, problems are quite a bit smaller. But nonetheless, all the same issues come up as we go through this over the next few months. Is this an attractive company? I mean, if they're going to start putting sealers out here and say, is there anybody interested in picking this up right now? Uh, it, it's maybe a smaller scale, but some of the same concerns that uh, the U.S. Steel slash Stelco had at those times. Mm. And it was pretty hard to try to find somebody who was interested. Right. So this is what we like to call the white knight. Is there someone who will come riding over the hill and say, I want this company? Uh, when we talked about Stelco, really truly a year ago, I wasn't sure that there was somebody who was going to come out of the shadows to buy the company. And yet Bedrock emerged and, and a white knight in the, in the form of of uh, uh, an ownership group did come out of the United States. The, the general problem we have in steel today is that demand has not recovered to pre-2007 levels. What does that mean? We've got an overcapacity of steel. So all these plants uh, are operating at 60% of capacity, 70% of capacity, and to be candid, that's not really the break-even level. You've got to be closer to 75-80% capacity just to break even. So if there is a white knight, this white knight has to come in, but also come in and say, I have some sort of a plan. I either can find a way to make the company profitable at this lower level of production, and in the case of Bedrock, who came in with Stelco, they did that by basically shucking all of the liabilities of the company. They got rid of all the debt. They got rid of all the environmental obligations. They even got rid of the pension obligations. And suddenly, when you didn't have those obligations, you could, you could make money at a lower production level, uh, or you have to come in and attract orders. And again, with Bedrock, this, this sort of hero behind the, the company, uh, he, he has this personality, kind of like a Warren Buffett, that people get attracted to, and so he was also able to attract orders. You would need a white knight like that. Otherwise, the capacity, to be quite frank, of Hamilton Specialty Bar isn't really needed in the market. If, if the company was completely shuttered and, in the worst case, demolished, 
the steel industry actually would probably cheer a little bit because that's now capacity that isn't needed. It helps everybody else survive a little bit more. So uh, this question of a white knight, I think, is a critical one. There's good stuff there. Don't, don't take me wrong. The technology, the operations are fine operations, but you've got to have somebody who's got the orders to make those operations work. Well, that's not good news. Well, I, I know that. I'm trying not to sound overly negative. It is a good company. It is a good value, but you need an owner who can bring something to the table. In other words, you and I aren't going to get together to buy it because we don't have any credibility in the steel industry. We don't have any ability to bring those orders. What you need is someone who can do that. So it could be an American company that says, look, I want to use this as the base of a Canadian operation, or maybe you know some other company that's interested in doing this. I doubt it would be bedrock. This is a whole different kind of steelmaking and a whole different market space to operate in, so I doubt it would be them. But it could be something, and that's really what Ernst & Young, going to the court tomorrow, says, give us a couple of months, let's shake the trees, let's see what can fall out. It sounds as if maybe the best fit for these guys uh, would be uh, some larger uh, organization to simply take them under their wing and say, yeah, we'll add you guys on. Well, that could be. So, you know, if you have a, a large organization who says, I need a mini-mill, this is what we call this, a mini-mill to complete my, my set of uh, installations. So maybe I have a blast furnace somewhere else, and they do that kind of steel. I need a mini-mill to do something. Uh, that could be there. But to be perfectly candid, again, although there was a, a bidding war 10 years ago between two different companies, that was even unexpected back in 2007. Mini-mills are, are not necessarily the most demanded form of steelmaking operation. So we were really shocked in 2007 to have two companies coming at it. Uh, it would be thrilling. It would be thrilling if we could see two companies emerge and, again, have a bidding war for this. I don't think this time around we're going to be as lucky. It just seems that with manufacturing and even advanced manufacturing now, uh, the, the boutique firms seem to be the, 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 the rage these days. That's where a lot of the new startups and the new businesses seem to be going. Uh, with steel, it seems to be the polar opposite. Yeah, it, the, here, uh, so I, I get what you're saying. Uh, it's basically that if you were starting from scratch, if you were starting with nothing, I think a boutique firm works. But there's, there are stakes in the ground here. That there's a, a, a facility, a plant, an installation already there. And, and it's a certain kind of technology, and with that certain kind of technology, there's only certain kinds of products that you can make. So you, you've already, in a sense, put those stakes in the ground. You aren't uh, really starting from scratch the way some of these new companies are. And, and as such, as a known commodity, it, it gets a little harder, I think, to attract people, especially since it's a known but older technology. This is really more of a technology from the 40s, 50s, 60s. It's not really a technology of the 2000s. With that in mind, though, uh, is, is there a concern long-term? I mean, the, the U.S. steel situation went on for years, both times. Uh, is, is there a, a, at least some expectation that, that maybe they, this can be done sooner than later? Yes. Now, again, I'm, I'm sorry to put it quite like this. I think this is what I like to call an up-or-out strategy, meaning uh, Ernst & Young is going to take a month, two, tops three, to see if they can find a buyer for it. But if no buyer can be found in that time period, it is also quite possible that this company could be shuttered. Uh, that that you know, they just this can't situation cannot continue. Ernst and Young cannot run this company for months and months and months and months. It can do it for a month or two or three, and even the court granting receivership the way it did understands there's a limit to just how long this can go on. So we either need to find a buyer relatively quickly in the next month or two, 
or the next other scenario is that it could be shuttered. In fact, it could be you could have a yard sale in essence, and all the pieces be sold off. It could even cease to exist by the end of this year. We're not hopeful that that happens. We hope they'll find a buyer, but that's the kind of game that's going on right at the moment. I'm surprised, though, that you know you and I had these discussions. I think we started this way back in 2008 when that recession started to kick in, mm-hmm. and the impact it was having on manufacturing and in the steel industry. And here we are in 2018, almost 10 years later, and, and they're, they're still in recovery mode? Yes, and it, and it really deals, it talks about how much of a deep freeze went into industry after 2007-8. You and I have also talked about a concept called dead money, yeah. in which companies generated profits, but rather than reinvesting them and growing their plants and buying new technologies and, and doing the kind of expansion, they were simply holding on to the cash because they weren't confident that there was a market for expanding. Now, we're in 2017, now 2018. And that mood seems to have changed. And at last, we're seeing some of that dead money getting spent. Now, whether this, or whether this is the American stock market, well, I don't know who to credit it to, but there now seems to be the start of that money. But for the last 10 years, it, it just wasn't being... And now even going forward, you know, is there, is there going to be happiness in the steel industry? I think eventually, but whether it will happen this year or more like 2019 or 20, uh, that's the question. So... Uh, somebody buying today, their prospects for the future, if they've got the kind of money, can look quite good. But right at this moment, we're still struggling a bit. Marvin Ryder at the DeGood School of Business. Marvin, thanks as always. Great talking with you today. Thanks for shedding some light on this. My pleasure, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. With the election coming up in June of this year, uh, it's springtime, and invariably, of course, both the provincial and federal government, for that matter, uh, we'll be presenting budgets, and uh, the provincial budget is going to be very, very important because it's probably going to serve as the baseline for the the election campaign, a re-election campaign, I guess, of, of the government currently in power. And uh, they are touting some, what they say, pretty positive economic news, but there are some challenges here, to be sure. Well, the Ontario and Hamilton Chambers of Commerce, among others, are weighing in on that, and they want to get ahead of the curve. So before the uh, provincial government and uh, Finance Minister Charles Souza uh, present their budget, they want to weigh in on this and say, look, at here are some of the things that we'd like to see addressed and some of the things that we think could be implemented to try to help business here in this community. Joining us to talk about this is Josefa Sayed, who is the Policy and Research Analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Good to have you with us. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having us, Bill. This is, uh, this is pretty important stuff and a very pivotal budget. I know that's a cliche that gets used an awful lot, but given the economic situation that's happening in this country right now, uh, the, the, the budget itself and obviously the subsequent election are going to have a huge impact on, on small business and I guess really business as a whole here in this province. Yeah, and, uh, I think um, what we're finding interesting is that um, both provincial and federal governments are riding on this wave of uh, economic recovery and economic progress that, uh, that is, is happening. And, and, you know, if you look at certain statistics, like we are doing quite well within Canada and in Ontario and, and, and even across the G7. However, you know, I think when we drill down to the numbers, um, because the chamber represents all businesses across all sectors, um, those those outcomes and those prog- that progress isn't really represented across the sector. There's, there's, there's a lot of growth happening in, in IT and, and in tech and and, and, you know, financial services and, and, and similar industries, but many others like manufacturing, small businesses, retail, uh, they're, they're feeling the crunch. And I, and I think part of, part of the challenge that they're facing is that um, alongside this economic uh, stability, uh, governments at both levels have felt um, the need to, to reorient um, 
cumulative regulatory burden. And what I mean by that is is the, the sum of taxation that businesses are, are supposed to pay. So the most obvious one that's been in the news is, is Bill 148. So um, $14 minimum wage, everyone knows about that going up to 15 next year. But in addition to that, there's also 20 other provisions that add cost to businesses. At the federal level, they were the very controversial small business tax changes. Uh, and, and within that scenario, I think what businesses are finding is that they're lacking confidence to invest further into the business. They're lacking the extra revenue to invest into business, while at the same time, so much of our economy, where, where our people live and, and wherever we do business, is leveraged on the United States of America. And that's the big elephant in the room that isn't really being taken into consideration for, for government decisions at, at times um, in, in when they're announcing different uh, new uh, proposals and, and, and different owners' proposals on businesses. And, and businesses themselves uh, are, are struggling to you know put money aside to prepare for uh, a variety of doomsday scenarios, the most obvious of one b- being President Trump announcing that you know he would like to cancel NAFTA and and you know pull us out and, and, and bring back American jobs and, and and especially when we look at Hamilton so much of our um, not just a primary manufacturing sector, but the service sectors, the real estate sectors, construction, a lot of it is leveraged on um, contracts in the United States and business mm-hmm. with the United States. So so we're not feeling that confident, and I think our members are, are having declining confidence. And, and, and what what we found interesting between when we were here in 2017 and when we were here in 2018 talking about the the budget, um, the business confidence has uh, eroded a bit, and, and, and where it has eroded the most is um, businesses feeling that they're getting pinched by the government in a variety of ways, and all the different taxes are adding up. And, and, and you know, while we can discuss minimum wage on its own, I think it's important to consider the full bloat of, of, of different taxations and disruptions that they're facing with. Well, and, and that's an important, important point here. And, uh, and again, when we have the debate about minimum wage, and, uh, and we've done that uh, at, at great length, of course, on this program, uh, the reality here is that it's passed. It's not a concept anymore. It's passed by the government. It's now 2018, and the $14 per minimum wage is, is, is in effect. That's law. So business has to deal with that. But that's only one I- I- item on, on their, you know, when they're doing their books. Uh, so we can talk about that ad nauseum if we want to. But there are so many other factors involved in this. We talked about hydro rates, and we talked yeah. about benefit packages and yeah. things of this nature that are going to have an impact on small business. The government comes back, though, uh, and has said, well, we've put some, some, some things in place to try to help that. And they have reduced the small business tax. It's gone down 1%, and that, that's significant. That's yeah. the income tax. Yeah. The income tax, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, and, and that means a lot. That's one thing. But that's only one element of this. Yeah. And, and, and what I want to do is talk to those small businesses and say, well, how is your bottom line? I mean... What have you got left at the end of the month? Can you pay all the bills? Can you pay for all yeah. these increases? And what I'm hearing from an awful lot of businesses is it's early at this stage, but the projections are we still need more help. Exactly, and I, I think it's. I'll give you an example for where things um, get better for for a certain segment of society. In one end, and businesses are supposed to automatically recover. But uh, an example is the uh, employer health tax, where any business has a payroll, uh, cumulative payroll of over four hundred thousand dollars, four hundred thousand dollars a year, um, must be an employer health tax of one point nine five percent. But if you think about it, if all these businesses are now paying uh, the new $14 minimum wage and giving a bump to existing salaried staff who, who obviously need more uh, now that uh, you know their people junior to them are earning more. Um, that goes up by 21%. 
right? Like if it's leveraged to um, your overall payroll and your payroll is going up by a certain amount, then now you're facing a 21% bump. So that's, that's, that's a start. Then there's uh, the business education tax that you pay municipally. So in the region of Halton, you're paying an entirely different, entirely lower amount of tax than you are paying in Hamilton. Uh, and for some businesses, it's up to you know 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 that they're paying in Hamilton. They're not paying in Halton. Um, and then what we've asked the government for years is that there needs to be a harmonization. Uh, and either you standardize it or, or you pitch into municipalities to cover uh, the, the gap. Um, the other one is uh, Ontario's marginal income tax, which is one of the highest in the developed world and, and you know one of the highest in Canada. Uh, and, and that really hasn't gone down. And what, what we're seeing there is that perhaps if you're not willing to consider overall taxation to go down, um, they need to reconsider you know the income thresholds upon which it starts applying uh, because it's based on revenue. So if, if a business is earning uh, $200,000, it starts to kick in, uh, whereas it doesn't kick in till $1.1 million in New York. And and you know the our chamber for example is is a partner with Buffalo Niagara, right? Like we have this reciprocal membership. We and our and our members are going there and they're and they're listening to them. And then you know uh, for certain businesses, like I'm sure they have a quite a appealing pitch on on you know come over to the U.S. We just President Trump just slashed you know uh, overall taxation by we, we need to 15%. talk about that we yeah. need because I know there's a lot of press about about the Trump tax plan and and uh, a lot of argument about how that's impacting individuals in the. United yeah. States and and that the jury's out on that an awful lot of people that thought they were going to get a break didn't but there seems to be pretty good consensus at this stage that the the budget the budget proposals that came through Congress are beneficial to business there I mean they've dropped their tax rates Absolutely. significantly so all of a sudden with the stroke of a pen by Donald Trump Ontario businesses are less competitive against their their American counterparts. Yeah, in uh, overnight, and and we already saw the uh, outcomes of that, where uh, there were a, a number of companies, as as President Trump would tweet, who gave their employees like significant bonuses, every employee a bonus, uh, and and they said this is entirely because of uh, just blanket savings that we're getting uh, the the day we woke up out of out of our beds in 2018, right? Um, and, and I think what we've asked the government for a, a number of years is that um, uh, one of the easiest ways to you know, make businesses feel more secure is the uh, corporate income tax and businesses. Like they had promised that it will go down to 10%. Um, uh, it's still stuck at 11 and a half. So one of the recommendations we have is uh, that they should follow through with their promises and, and, you know, just to try to bring us a bit more in alignment with the U.S. Uh, because we're so close to that border, uh, I should go down to 10% from 11 and a half in the next uh, budget or two. What about connecting the dots here to some of the other issues? And, and we're focusing on the provincial budget because that's imminent. And, and, you know, this is the, the Hamilton and the Ontario Chambers. But but other tax policies from federal governments can have an impact on this. And the, the one that springs to mind, of course, were the, some of the suggestions that uh, Finance Minister Bill Morneau brought up with the last time they presented a budget, uh, and it had a negative impact. And we saw the pushback from small business because of that. Now, they've made some modifications yeah. to it, to their credit. They, they did listen. Uh, one of the things that they still seem to be adamant about, though, is, is elimination of income sprinkling. Uh, which is a phrase that they yeah. use. It's really income distribution among family members in a business. And it was a way for small business especially to to build a nest egg, to, to look after so they would have some financial wherewithal during the ups and downs yeah. of business. It made an awful lot of sense. And the last time the Ontario government came up with these tax plans, they said, I know I know this might be tough, but you know what? That federal plan that we, you can income sprinkle is good. Well, that's gone now. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Ontario government has to respond to that. 
Yeah, and, and I think that here's the interesting thing about a lot of these proposals. Like they come in, and and the messaging, government messaging there is this is about fairness, is about uh, giving the right taxation to the right you know uh, amount of people and, and spreading the wealth. But you know, one of the largest challenges, the reason why we're not able to share the wealth and we're, why we're not able to create prosperity from the private sector side is that while per capita Canadians are creating actually more businesses annually than the U.S. in in, in most years, uh, we have a massive scale up problem where businesses get up to a certain level, let's say five, five employees, you know, six employees, ten employees, uh, and they're not easily able to get to 50, 100, 200 um, the way they are d- down in the states uh, because of different tax regimes. And 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 the challenge with our tax regime is uh, is that even when Minister Morneau tried to fix the proposals uh, that didn't go so well the first time around, uh, one of the things they promised was that we'll lower the overall uh, corporate tax rate. Well, what it does in 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 a sense is actually encourages. Um, additional behavior uh, where you're not incentivized to reinvest into your business, grow your business, um, and and you know make capital investments and, and make new export uh, you know adventures into new countries that uh, can create a condition where you know when we talk to businesses in our membership, there are 200 you know, 400, 600, um, they're relatively less concerned about the impact uh, of minimum wage at times and, and, and a lot of these provisions because because of the overall size and wealth and, and the high quality products they're creating that they can sell at a high price, most of their employees are already above that scale uh, and, and, and they have enough in the bank to be able to uh, respond to these changes. Where we get the most flack is, is businesses that aren't able to scale up and they've been stuck at this same level for, you know, several years and, and, and they're not, they don't have much left in the bank and now they're facing all these new costs. So one of the other uh, such recommendations are a, a bunch of prescriptions we have uh, which ask the government to delay taxation on profits. Um, and, and, and by doing so, the theory goes that businesses will then take that and, and reinvest it back into the business and grow it. Because ultimately that's what we want to see. You know, if, if we can get there and, and start scaling up a number of businesses in Hamilton, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that, you know, several years down the road if this, if another minimum wage proposal goes up, you, you know we'll, we'll see a lot less anger. Well, we just talked about this last hour when we were talking about Hamilton Specialty Bar, and they've gone into receivership, yeah. unfortunately. And and one of the reasons they stated was cash flow. They said we have cash flow exactly. problems. Every small business has that problem. Exactly. And if you don't have that nest egg or that uh, the capability of paying down your your line of credit when you have those yeah. sorts of problems, or mechanism built into the tax system for you to take those profits in the right years. Not only do you not grow, at some point you may even have to. Start looking at shrinkage like they're doing now. Exactly. And well, that's that's prohibitive to small business. Yeah. So the government has to do something about yeah. that. And, and and that's exactly where all the economic studies that you know are controversial and, and not fully agreed upon by um, certain uh, you know stakeholders, like you know the Bank of Canada saying the the Parliamentary Budget Officer TD Bank and, and you know the Ontario Chamber report. We said there's gonna, going to be job losses because of it's not because of minimum wage. Right, like I, I think that's, that's the wrong way some people are taking it. We're not blaming minimum wage. What we're and, and these economists are professionals. What they're looking at is scenarios like Hamilton Specialty Bar. You know, I don't know too much about their specifics, but there's a lot of examples. But like you that know all about Hamilton cash histories. flow. Yeah, and we hear about cash flow all the time. And all it takes is un connected hits from different levels of government in different areas and unintended outcomes that all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at the end of the month and you're trying to pay your staff. Relay it to your own personal household. If you don't have enough money coming in from whatever jobs you have to pay the bills, to pay the mortgage, to pay the utility bills, 
and you start putting some of those bills on your credit card, yeah. you know where that's going to go. And, and I think Canadians well, know all about are, that. Businesses are faced with that same problem yeah. now. Yeah, and I think that's a cultural problem. Like that, to bring my personal opinion, I think I think there, there's something different in the way Canadians uh, are looking at, at our economy and a lot of this because the other story you might have heard or might have discussed in a different show is uh, Canadians have a, an exceedingly large amount of personal household debt. Uh, so, so, so we're, we're in this stage. We've been in this stage for, you know, I guess a decade now, where, where there's been economic stability and 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 rising cost everywhere around us. But I think a lot of um, people in society are, have been able to live this, uh, you know, same standard of living. But but you know, as 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 we were discussing before the show, uh, all it takes is small shocks here and there, and, and and one of them could be NAFTA, where everything you know starts spiraling out of control, and then you have to raise interest rates, and then and for businesses that's a pretty bad prospect. So so our overall message with this pre-budget is is more so that while there's good news stories from the government's perspective on how stable the economy is, um, you know, th- it doesn't really dictate what's going to happen tomorrow morning or a month from now, two months from now. And and we need to make stable investments that will help businesses withstand anything that comes uh, their way. Uh, this is a great document, some great ideas and some great talking points about what could and should be in that Ontario budget. Make sure it gets hand-delivered to the minister, could you? Absolutely. This is important stuff. Good having you in here again. Thanks, Jose. I really appreciate it. Jose Fasayed, Policy Research Analyst with the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.